welcome to a Michael and Us special report. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage, good to be back. It's great. You know, here we are in Hillary's America. Um, yeah, so uh, we promised a bonus episode. To, to our many fans. Yeah, a bonus episode of this podcast. We pretty heavily hinted um, that it would be Dinesh D'Souza's Hillary's America because we had a good time with 2016 Obama's America. But um, somehow it just doesn't seem very funny anymore, does it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're here in, in the wake of this catastrophic U.S. election, and we were thinking about how we could continue, whether to do another episode of Michael and Us, whether to kind of pack our bags. Um, but I think, you know, we're having fun doing podcasting. And we want to continue it in some way. But uh, yeah, Hillary's America just didn't feel right, did it? No, um, but I do feel like we owe it to ourselves, if not our listeners, to like not have the podcast necessarily end on a note of, well, here we here we go into Hillary's America. Like, <laughs> I think this podcast demands to at least end in a place that's not just like lefty smugness. Yeah, that is where we ended. I think it was warranted given the, the circumstances. And if anything, the uh, election results shows that the, the smugness was very, uh, you know, was was directed at a worthy target. I mean, I know that hindsight is twenty twenty, but when uh, Trump won, um, I mean, once I got over just, you know, the horrible, like, catatonic yeah. shock of it, yeah, it does kind of feel like the only way this election could have ended, right? I mean, you've got you've got one guy who's just dominated the election, the guy who set the terms of the election, the guy yeah. who's just captured the zeitgeist in an awful way, versus... Versus com- complacent liberals who just thought they were going to win because they were destined to and didn't really seem like they wanted to win for any particular reason, didn't yeah. seem like they had any compelling uh, political reasons why they should win. A party that was selling hats that said America is already great on their website. The, a party that was wheeling out Lena Dunham to do kind of post-ironic uh, celebrity <laughs> limousine liberalism a few days before the election because that that was going to get out the vote in, in Virginia and Wisconsin. A party that didn't bother to campaign in Wisconsin since April. <laughs> a party that, like, Hillary Clinton would disappear for months on end. You wouldn't hear anything about her. A, a presidential campaign whose leading figure was submerged in these... Uh, for, for the whole month of August, it felt like, in these kind of back rooms being feted by billionaires who were, you know, paying for access to what they imagined was going to be a, a future uh, Hillary presidency. I saw a great quote from George Clooney, friend of the show, where um, he said, Donald Trump will never be president. And he said, Trump will never be president because that's not who we are as a country. Uh, we, we're not the kind of country who is afraid of Muslims. We're mm. not the kind of country that that hates like this to which i would say you're not american so this 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 being the same george clooney that you know that helped host a three hundred thousand dollar a plate fundraiser for hillary clinton i don't imagine the people most of the people who could pay that you know would have a particular fear of muslims who could pay 300k (laughs) for a you know a single dinner but you know. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> you know, not to get too smug about this, because obviously, well, it's, it's, we're, a, it's I mean, horrible... we're not smug. I mean, it's terrifying. It's yeah, awful. It's, awful. it's been miserable. Few, it's been miserable few days. And uh, and for Christ's sake, like we're up in Canada. We're not even in the United States. I mean, imagine. I mean, the, the I have to keep like repeating that to myself. I, I've had conversations with American friends who are, you know, genuinely thinking about leaving the United States and who are just utterly utterly terrified i mean especially if you're a woman or a person of color i mean the threat of donald trump is very visceral and real so there's no there's no reason for anybody to be 
smug about it. So again, originally the plan was to watch Dinesh D'Souza's Hillary's America, have a chuckle, be like, ha ha ha, this guy's an idiot. But seriously, Hillary's going to be a bad president and here's why. Yeah. Obviously, that's not on the table anymore. So, you know, I was I was casting around in my mind for um, what's a, what's a film that seems somehow fitting for the occasion? Oh my god! Something that uh, <laughs> something something that I guess was maybe more serious. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we settled on a little movie called Triumph of the Will. <laughs> Before we get into this, I want to get to Michael Moore in a second, but yeah. the ostensible subject of this podcast. Mm. But uh, before we get into this, we're not necessarily equating Donald Trump with Hitler. No, here. this is, I mean, so Will and I had talked about um, weeks ago before the election, we talked about how might we continue this podcast. And one of the ideas that was floated around was, you know, I think it's safe to say we've shared for, for years, really, a mutual interest in gaudy right wing aesthetics mm-hmm. and in... And I mean, throughout the Michael Moore podcast, you know, we watched these really wretched kind of straight to DVD <laughs> conservative movies that just had this, you know, ludicrous kind of stars and stripes gaudiness. And so, I, you know, I think we've had an interest more broadly in the, I don't know, aesthetics of politics as mm. they're found in, in cinema. And uh, so that's one direction we thought of taking the podcast. And, and this seemed like a good opportunity. And I mean, Triumph of the Will is uh, probably the most famous political propaganda movie ever made. So we thought we'd start there. And as I was watching Triumph of the Will this time for, I think, the third time in my life, yeah, uh, I kept thinking that, you know, Donald Trump, you're you're no Hitler. Oh, my God. Well, I, I, should, I shouldn't say that. He's horrible. But, <laughs> like, his, his fascist aesthetic, I think, uh, could beat uh, Trump's fascist aesthetic. Well, I think it, it is interesting to... It is interesting to watch a film like this in relation to the... You know, I think it's safe to say, you know, right wing authoritarian tendencies of something like Donald Trump or uh, his European equivalent, somebody like Nigel Farage, because it's, I mean, you know, you're being silly, but it's like it's absolutely true that, you know, this film has the look of being kind of like there's ideology mm-hmm. throughout it. The aesthetic is informed by ideology. And today it doesn't feel like politics Either the kind, either the kind of right-wing populism of someone like Donald Trump, or kind of uh, the liberal politics that so often challenges that, really has any anything on on this or on um, you know whatever the equivalent Soviet propaganda, or even the you know you talked about. There's a Frank Capra series called Why We Fight, which was mm-hmm. kind of the American response to this, which I haven't seen, but I imagine it would also be true that that has a lot more. Um, you know, Elon than some of the stuff that uh, we see today. You know, there was a period in the 70s when Lenny Riefenstahl was being sort of reclaimed as this kind of proto-feminist filmmaker um, and this person who um, made Nazi propaganda films but was an artist first and foremost. Yeah. Shattered and, the glass ceiling to make Nazi propaganda films. Yeah, and I've got a quote here from uh, Jonas Mikas, uh, a very important sort of film critic and film programmer 
who uh, regrettably wrote when Lenny Riefenstahl published her famous photographs of African tribesmen in the 70s, Mikas wrote, uh, she continues her celebration or is it a search of the classical beauty of the human body, the search which she began in her films. She is interested in the ideal, in the monumental. And he concludes with, and here is my own final statement on Riefenstahl's films. If you are an idealist, you will see idealism. If you are a classicist, you will see her films as an ode to classicism. If you are a Nazi, you will see Nazism. Hmm. Uh, which I think is comment. Uh, it's an interesting comment, but I mean, for God's sake, that's it's hard, like bending it, over backwards. It's isn't hard it? not to watch this film and see a very you know. A, I mean, this film is all about the conscious celebration of the Third Reich, and I mean the other things that he cites. I mean, you know, you know, kind of classical aesthetic and stuff like. I mean, those were things that were part of the Third Reich. Those were aesthetics that were implicit in the Third Reich. And so I think it is it is a little disingenuous to kind of try to extricate them. I think I'd like to bring up something that Susan Sontag said in her article, Fascinating Fascism, which is probably kind of the definitive takedown of Riefenstahl. Talking about the Nuba tribesmen who um, Riefenstahl did photos of, she said, Although the Nuba are black, not Aryan, Riefenstahl's portrait of them is consistent with some of her larger themes of Nazi ideology. The contrast between the clean and the impure, the incorruptible and the defiled, the physical and the mental, the joyful and the critical. Uh, the principal accusation against the Jews within Nazi Germany was that they were urban intellectual bearers of a destructive, corrupting, critical spirit. And then she says a little bit later, what's distinctive about the fascist version of the old idea of the noble savage is its contempt for all that is reflective, critical, and pluralistic. In Riefenstahl's casebook of primitive virtue, it is hardly the intricacy and subtlety of primitive myth, social organization, or thinking that are being extolled. She's especially enthusiastic about the ways the Nuba are exalted and unified by the physical ordeals of their wrestling matches. Um, hmm. You know, and she goes on. Yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting. I mean, still, though, it's true that I mean, I think it's safe to say this film, there is an interest in kind of, yeah, the body and and I mean, the the physicality of large crowds. But again, I think that's just uh, I, I'm not sure if uh, Sontag's intention here. I haven't read the uh, the whole essay, but I mean, is her intention to you, you said this essay is kind of a takedown. She's not doing what uh, the previous guy you read is doing, trying to extricate these things and from from. Like, she's not saying that, that uh, Riefenstahl wasn't really a Nazi. She was an artist. Or no, what? no. What she's saying is, like, Riefenstahl's ideas, right. uh, the, the ideas and themes she's trying to express through her art, right. whether it's the Nuba tribesmen right. or They the remain Nazis. consistent. Yeah. yeah, and it's this kind of celebration of, mm-hmm. you know, purity and yeah. ignorance in a way. Yeah, so let's uh, let's talk about... Uh, let's let's kind of lay out Triumph of the Will, shall we? Or I guess we haven't talked about Michael Moore yet. Do we want to just do a little... Yeah, let's let's just uh, comment on him. Um, this is the, the, the Moore interlude. <laughs> yeah. You know, we were pretty hard on Michael during uh, the last podcast. Rightly so. Rightly so. He made a horrible film. He had film. it coming. Michael's been in the press quite a bit lately because he correctly called the election six months ago when he wrote that article, Why Donald Trump Will right. Win. And then took it back we, a few weeks well, later. Well, you, you know, more is like the stopped clock that's right yeah. <laughs> twice a yeah. day because... As we've said before, at every stage of the election, he's written kind of a blog post about whatever the current received wisdom about Trump was. Yeah. You remember there was that other one about how Trump is obviously mentally ill and he needs to be. Yeah. Do you remember when he when he he wrote an open letter to Trump's children in which he had an imagined conversation between <laughs> oh. Ivanka and Donald? 
I think something interesting about this election is the idea, it's the same lesson that we learned in 2004, which is you can't simply run a candidate on the basis of voting against something else. Yeah. Like you actually have to give a reason for them to vote for your guy. And with Trump land in its very clumsy way, I think Moore was actually trying to do that. He d- we accused him of not laying out like the coldly rationalistic, pragmatic case for Hillary. But I think that was very deliberate. He seemed to be trying to say, I've actually got to people get people excited for Hillary if we're going to win this. Right. So he laid out a bunch of like pitiful reasons. Totally banal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he fa- he tried he tried and failed to uh, he tried and failed to do that. But oddly enough, you know, we've seen the return of Moore as this kind of like a uh, pragmatic figure. He posted this Facebook blog post saying uh, there was like Mike's elect post election to do list. Is pragmatic the right word? Is that or do you... pra- pragmatic's not the right word? Is uh, it? What would be the word? Um, well, I mean, we, we're seeing him return to his. Uh, f- his ostensibly radical sort of former posturing that, that we're more familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that's a little bit more like, I don't know, more in kind of 2003. Anyway, right. he the point is he released a to-do list and of here are a bunch of things we need to get, get rid get of the Democratic Party like, leadership. Destroy the Democratic Party leadership and, and things like that. Things which were mostly good suggestions and which were more, felt a lot more constructive to me than a lot of the I mean, because I think in the last year, his arc has been just, he's, he, I mean, by the end of the election, he was just a shill, basically. Uh-huh. So yeah, it's it's been nice to see him kind of return to this a little bit, although it would have been more helpful to have it. Uh... <laughs> I've also, I've also kind of liked him. He's been on a lot of the, you know, Sunday morning shows lately, kind of returning to this persona of like the working class uh, champion. Yeah. Um, which I guess I'm happy to see. I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I feel like our perceptions are so warped by yeah. just the like we're yeah. we're like less than a week on from. We have to see how things settle to figure out how we really. F- I, honestly, I think when we recorded the Trumpland episode, that's how we feel about Michael Moore, and that's how we're going to feel about mm-hmm. Michael Moore when the dust kind of settles. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, that has by far been our most popular episode, and we're really gratified for. Uh, I mean the the thousands of you that have listened to it. Mm. It's really uh, it's really fantastic. Yeah. So so thanks. Yeah. Keep keep downloading it, uh-huh. even though it's like expired. Now. <laughs> like why would you listen to it? Well, now? we we hope you'll stay with us as we do. You know, a little bit more serious material, but we're hoping that you know the conversations will still be interesting and funny, and we're gonna do. We haven't got the concept. Uh, you know, the kind of the concept is still uh, nascent, but. We're hoping to do, you know, gaudy and silly films as well as kind of ridiculously grandiose spectacle films like this one. So shall we lay out Triumph of the Will? What what happens in it? A lot of marching. Yeah, so, I mean, this film is... I mean, it is, it is quite spectacular in a way, but it's quite... Uh, it's quite banal in another way because yeah. it really is just... There are kind of, what, sort of two types of scenes in this movie. There are large marches or rallies and then there are speeches a lot of the these kind of events don't even have um any dialogue it's just people cheering and and screaming and stuff like that and people marching and the speeches i think frankly aren't some of hitler's best material no (laughs) Um, no it's a lot of banalities about how you know we all got to come together as one in this uh classless society yeah Partei, gerade sieben Mann hoch war. Grafisch und Zeitrunde, Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauung 
sein. Und weiters, Sie wollten, Herr, kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Yeah, I think so. I mean, just the film really is just a kind of chronicle of six days of, an, I guess, 1934, the, the Nuremberg rally. And what we see is various kind of wings of the, well, the Nazi party and or the state. They're pretty, they're almost inextricable at this point. Um, you know, so there's the, the SS youth, there's the uh, German labor front, there's the, the cavalry and, and armor divisions. Um, there's the party congress itself, which we, we see uh, inside of it. Hitler is in most of the scenes, and he's usually accompanied. There's a, there's a few kind of A-list Nazis like Goebbels and, and Rudolf Hess, and uh, Goring, I think, makes an appearance. But for the most part, Hitler is accompanied by these kind of forgotten uh, bureaucratic figures of the Third Reich. So it, he'll always he'll go up to the podium, and he'll be introduced by somebody whose title will be like, you know, and it'll be like, you know, Heinrich Elfman, the, you know, uh, I'm just making it up, but, you know, mm -hmm. the, you know, you know, deputy party undersecretary for, you know, youth and highways or something. Yeah, yeah, Some yeah, just generic yeah. thing like that. And I mean, there is there is an ideology to this film. And I think that's what's mm -hmm. interesting about it. I mean, the, the film is is pure fascist aesthetic, the film and what it's capturing, uh, mm -hmm. which is really this this idea of a corporatist society, one where all the traditional structures really are, I mean, are, are in a big way preserved. The traditional division of labor is preserved. Uh, you know, the, the society is, is still very patriarchal. It's still, you know, racially homogenous, all these things. And yet this kind of new liturgy that the Nazis have created has given people, whether they're the lowliest farmer or, you know, young person from a hinterland province to uh, medical professionals or, uh, you know, actual state bureaucrats at the commanding heights of the economy or whatever. It asks for uncritical participation. And what it gives in return is the feeling that everyone's contributing equally. Mm -hmm. So it's an ingenious kind of way of preserving and uh, consolidating inequality, but then, you know, creating this facade of unity behind this idea of an organic society that's united around traditional iconography and uh, and also uh, war and the prospect of war. That's what the film achieves, if you can call that an achievement. Yeah, there's that great moment when people are doing this demonstration for Hitler where they're all chanting things like, you know, we are the axe wielders, we, mm -hmm. we're in the swamp, mm -hmm. and we, we do this, we do this. Mm -hmm. And then, or, and then we see all the... All the you know, German farmers marching mm -hmm. with their hay to present it to the Fuhrer. Yeah, and, and sort of shovels, and you'll have a drill yeah. sergeant say, where are you from, comrade? And I'm from uh, Silesia, where are you from, Conrad? I'm from the Ruhr, where are you, comrade? You know, I'm from Prussia or whatever. It's like, you know, despite all these, you know, everyone's come from, everyone has a different class background, everyone's come from a different uh, German province, but we can all be unified kind of in the state. And his speech to the labor front, I was going to say the mm -hmm. labor division, but it's, it's evocatively called the labor front. Hitler says something like, in the future, all Germans will, will be in your ranks. At mm -hmm. some point, they'll have to do manual labor. And in the Germany that we're trying to build, manual labor will be just as valuable as, mm -hmm. as all other forms of of work so that's the uh equalizing that or that's the 
you know, homogeneity that, you know, uh, was ideologically implicit in fascism and uh, and is also very visible in the aesthetic of this film. There was kind of a chilling moment for me when there's that final parade through the streets of Munich when you see everybody, you know, waving outside the windows and you see all these thousands of people on the roofs of the buildings. It, it, it's enough that there are all these thousands of soldiers in their rigid formations, but the fact that all of these civilians are also leaning playing, out the window, they're all just, they're also yeah. playing a role in this spectacle, and it gives the impression that every single person in Germany mm. is part of this spectacle. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it is. It's really amazing this kind of spectacle of uh, the spectacle of participation that is really the achievement of these these events and and the film as well i'll tell you i found the movie uh pretty damn boring yeah um i think there comes a point i think after about 30 minutes when you've pretty much used up everything in riefenstahl's bag of tricks yeah well and you know one thing that i think we both noticed this time and which i think became sort of a running gag in our impatient commentary when we were watching (laughs) the film was the fact that Every scene basically is accompanied with some kind of wistful serenade about, you know, some grandiose, it's either a marching tune or some deep patriotic thing. And they're just so banal. Like it could be anything. You could just, you could just make them up. They're so, the melodies are so, uh, they're, they're so facile and they kind of insist upon themselves. Like you have to, you, you'd have to convince yourself that there was beauty in them to like, you know in order to find you know well, they're anything. not even rousing they're not even they? really rousing they're, they're just so they're like music yeah they are they are yeah and you know we see you know riefenstahl undeniably captures a lot of incredible images and i mean this movie is nothing if not a triumph of geometry i mean mm. you see you see so many incredible forms of people but like at the end of the day, how many times can you watch a camera move along a row of people? Yeah, like yeah. Once you've seen that once, kind of seen, <laughs> or you've seen all you've seen all the helmets laid out side by side on the ground. There is an amazing shot towards the end, just as the parade is about to start, when uh, you know the Führer gets in his car and the camera is mounted on the back of the car and it drives out of this stadium, and you just see this like you know, the bleachers of people with their arms extended in the Nazi salute. And it just goes on and on and on, uh, you know, forever, seemingly. Yeah. Like the ship at the beginning of Spaceballs. <laughs> well, that's where Mel Brooks got the idea, clearly. <laughs> yeah. um, so, I mean, I don't know. Riefenstahl is, uh, you know, according to the boon to the scholar Wikipedia, <laughs> It said said something along the lines of, uh, the, though Riefenstahl has only made two films that were commonly seen outside of Germany. Uh, I think she made eight films total, but uh, this, this was the film that made her considered arguably the, the greatest uh, female director of the 20th century. Mm. I don't think she is. Right. I don't think she's even in the top five. There comes a point when, you know, it, it's, a, it's an incredible articulation of what I think is a pretty simple-minded philosophy yeah. and a pretty... And, and a sinister one. A, a sinister one. And at the end of the day, it's like ultimately a kind of banal and repetitive experience mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it, you know, makes me wonder, everyone always says this is a great movie. Is it really a great movie? Is it great art? I I, I think it, I mean, I, I understand why it has the reputation it does. I, I feel like maybe you're misinterpreting the, the that Wikipedia statement, though, because Perhaps. it's really, it sounds to me like it's more a statement about the perception of Lenny Riefenstahl as opposed well, yeah, to the reality yeah, yeah. of whether these, you know, this is a, gr- a great film. We, we should say, though, that... Um, but I almost feel like when people uh, say that as perception, it's almost like... Well, it's a cop-out. Well, it's, it's like, a cop-out, and it's almost like separate, you know, t- doing that thing where you separate the artist from the art, yeah. or separate, or 
rather separate art from ideology. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to so to show how open minded you are. Well, and and Riefenstahl herself, right after the war, really tried to do a revisionist history and sort of say that you know she'd never really been a Nazi. She mm-hmm. was just doing documentary. It's pretty hard to believe that when well, you, you watch this film. Well, you heard that famous quote that she said, where she said, uh, "There are no staged incidents in this film." Um, well, I mean, that's... I, ju- I just ca- I just captured reality. That's just. But a I mean, lie. frankly, the the whole rally was staged for around her, around her cameras. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if anything, for Christ's sake, she's just own it because the one thing this film really has going for it is is the camera work is in, is incredible. Yeah, and she had an you know an amazing something like a fifty person crew shooting yeah. this thing. But you know, it should be said that. Uh, this film is the most famous propaganda. This film is kind of the archetypal stand-in for famous propaganda movies, but it's actually quite unusual for propaganda films. Whether you're talking about the propaganda cinema of fascist Japan in the 1930s, Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union, or even kind of the propaganda of liberal capitalism in the United States or elsewhere, this is a really unusual film because of how technically adept it is. Mm. If you're producing something for like a mass medium, uh, you don't want it to be artsy. If the goal is to persuade people, what you need is maximum legibility, which is why most of the architects, well, I mean, a lot of these fil- a lot of the films that I'm sure we'll end up watching because they're more interesting, mm. you know, like by directors like Ziga Vertov or Sergei Eisenstein or uh, people like that, you know, they too are very artsy, even though they're these famous propaganda films. But the actual kind of state ideologues and bureaucrats that were producing these cinemas with the idea of like converting the peasantry of you know the ukraine or whatever to sovietism or whatever they were really interested in copying like lenny riefenstahl they copied hollywood and so Mm -hmm. did a lot of the german propagandists because if there was one thing that the hollywood studio system of the 1920s and 30s did well it was produce legible easy to understand films with formulaic narratives that could be easily digested by anybody and that could also be mass produced Mm -hmm. i mean the films of the 1920s and 30s were basically produced on an assembly line and uh but i'm correct me if i'm wrong but this whole idea this it's it's very conventional now even when now we're doing you know these mass studio productions we still think of the director as this critical force right. but it, but in the hollywood cinema of that time it was really the producer that was the important person because he or she was the logistician that was kind of holding everything together and mm-hmm. the directors could just be kind of swapped in and out they were just another part of the production chain so it should be noted that even though this is a very famous propaganda film, it's quite atypical. And if mm. you want to see what real propaganda was like, you got to, you know, a, a lot of the big ideas come from 20s and 30s Hollywood, mm. ironically enough. I've seen The Eternal Jew. Right. You, we, we watched it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's I, a really despicable, just an awful, awful film. thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, if nothing else, at least you can see how much better Lenny Riefenstahl was when you see that. I mean, I don't remember that much about it. I feel like we watched it. We we had a, a few years ago, we had a series of where we're watching. It might have been, honestly, we watched this around then possibly too. Mm-hmm. Uh, we watched a number of kind of very dark kind of fascist or, you know, propaganda movies or film, you know, films about mm-hmm. this time. And that was one of them. Um, I don't remember much about it, though. Yeah, I don't remember a lot about it either. Mm-hmm. I remember it saying... Uh, 
well, I don't know. I don't think I want to say no, what it said, it's a, it's so it's a, you know, it's a, it's a di- just disgustingly anti-Semitic. When you go you know, on the Pirate Bay, don't read the comment section. Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, uh, <laughs> one more quote I want to read about Triumph of the Will is from Roger Ebert's very widely circulated review of it. Right. Um, where uh, he says, it is one of the most historically important documentaries ever made. Yes. But one of the best. It is a terrible film, paralyzingly dull, simple-minded, overlong, and not even manipulative because it is too clumsy to manipulate anyone but a true believer. Um, I mean, I agree with them that it's paralyzingly dull, Mm -hmm. but I don't think Ebert really does the kind of like intellectual Mm -hmm. um, work to decipher why this movie was uh, Mm. persuasive to people. I've talked to people about this movie. I've heard, you know, in, in classes that I've taken, I've heard seemingly rational people say things like i can understand why this movie is effective i watch it and i'm like god this looks amazing i want to be part of this Mm. and then i remember yeah i remember what it is and it sounds like i'm making that up but i've heard at least two or three people say yeah i don't that sounds sounds ridiculous that sounds like that's people saying what they think they're supposed to say about it yeah but i mean could could you imagine being in the 30s watching this movie and being persuaded by because i watch it and this doesn't look like something i want to be well part you, of. you were saying you were saying that uh you know if you'd have been around at the time it might have been like one of those you know cultural obligations <laughs> like oh i've you know i've got to go see you know, we're going to take the family to see you know the new the new propaganda the new state you know M- much like in the like same way the that oscar bait whenever anybody got married they got a free copy of mein Kampf. <laughs> is that true <laughs> i think so oh, or like every it was like everybody had to have a copy of that yeah. book, like the Gideon Bible or something. <laughs> but I don't know, watching it, I don't know, maybe people at the time sort of took comfort in being like part of this mass. Uh, when I was watching this movie, I kept like, every time I would see a little bit of humanity from the people in the movie, mm. it seemed I really liked it. Like mm. early in the movie, we see this like little boy who's like got his fingers in his mouth and he's like playing with his mouth or mm-hmm. later we see people marching by the camera and you just catch one of them look at looks the camera, in the camera yeah and it's so like well it disrupt it's it disrupts the uh like just the homo the, the dull homogeneity of the whole thing well you it? see the guy look in the camera and you think oh my god this is an actual, an actual person yeah. with a life and a family who's probably gonna be dead in 10 yeah, years yeah like most of the people in this film yeah ebert yeah. in his review he compares this movie to woodstock the woodstock documentary where, which i haven't seen for a long time but but he mentions that in that movie you know the janitorial guy the guy who ran the porta potties almost becomes like a folk hero throughout the film right whereas ebert's point is well there are no characters in this well, film. like yeah. ebert points out that yes you know riefenstahl captures the beauty of this but in a way she captures the least interesting part of it it's mm-hmm. like how did these people actually get in these formations how did they relieve themselves i mean that's an interesting point because this is a film which is celebrating i mean it's at the period in the life of the third reich when i mean really this is in some ways the spiritual peak of the third reich i mean uh-huh. it's during the total consolidation of power and what we don't see is that what enabled this was kind of 15 years of economic depression and revolution and counter-revolution you know, Hitler's failed coup, the aborted, you know, communist, uh, the, the Spartacus revolution after the First World War. And also the fact that one of the principal enablers for fascism was you had all these demobilized military units, just young men broken by being forced into the trenches and terrified and angry 
and, you know, full of rage. And, you know, this kind of, there was this overriding sense of national humiliation that followed the German defeat in the First World War. And a strong sense, I mean, people forget, but the First World War really ended because German sailors and soldiers mutinied Mm. and really in, in the space of a few weeks brought the country to a verge of a socialist revolution. And the kind of stain of that, the humiliation of that, was something the German ruling class really never forgot. And all these all these different things, you know, all this politics and all of this, like, very real, uh, in some cases, physical pain that people suffered is what kind of leads up to this. But all you uh-huh. see in the film is just this kind of... Yeah, this kind of but the banal grandiosity of this of these rallies, and there's really no sense of how they came about or or yeah, even why anybody. There's would just be nothing attracted to really this. cling on to no. here, you know. It, the movie feels shockingly hollow. Yeah, but you know, not to belabor the the Donald Trump comparison mm-hmm. or anything, but mm-hmm. I mean, if we're comparing this version of fascism to well, uh, whatever we're calling to, Trumpism, yeah. Uh, but you know, on your recommendation, I was reading Corey Robbins. The Reactionary Mind. Great book. Which I've put aside because I just can't bear it anymore. Yeah. But <laughs> I'll get back to it eventually. But, you know, he was talking about interviewing William F. Buckley and Buckley saying around 2000, saying that the problem with the collapse of the Soviet Empire is there are no great enemies. You need an other to mobilize and rally against. And also that in the 90s, the conservative battles were over. I don't know why they're like cultural issues or over, you know, uh, Medicare or something like, you know, where's this great kind of like colonial vision? Yeah. Hitler certainly had this vision of, you know, creating this brave new world. Mm. I I don't think Donald... Is there there a utopianism to Trumpism? Well... Not not sure. I I don't know. I mean, he talks about making America great again. It it seems a little more reactionary than, than Hitler's vision. It seems more kind well, of no, or like nostalgic not that's yeah. the word i'm looking for uh it's definitely reactionary yeah <laughs> well it's yeah. reactionary in, yeah. a, in a different way in yeah. a different way it's mm-hmm. uh you know mm-hmm. bringing the factories back and building up walls and yeah. let's not have any muslims in and yeah. you know let's let, let's keep it in here and and just by having this kind of like hyper isolationism mm-hmm. we can make ourselves great again yeah and the and these kind of i think another component of trumpism is this celebration of what's supposed to be an ideal of like traditional american masculinity as well that's yeah. a big part of it um yeah on that note i mean i wanted to read this uh this is a, a quote which uh, i found by way of uh walter benjamin who took his own life while fleeing the nazis but this is in uh, an essay of his and he's quoting marinetti who was one of the founders of futurism a Italian futurism and really one of the kind of I guess you could say principal aestheticians of fascism and it's this is a remarkable quote it's part of uh, his manifesto for the colonial war in Ethiopia in 1936 when Italy invaded Ethiopia and I mean what's striking about it is how self-conscious it is how this is a premeditated aesthetic it's an utterly terrifying quote and the fact that he's not being facetious at all is incredible so he says For 27 years, we futurists have rebelled against the idea that war is anti-aesthetic. We therefore state war is beautiful because thanks to its gas masks, its terrifying megaphones, its flamethrowers and light tanks, it establishes man's dominion over the subjugated machine. War is beautiful because it inaugurates the dreamed of metalization of the human body. War is beautiful because it enriches a flowing meadow with the fiery orchids of machine guns. War is beautiful because it combines gunfire barrages, ceasefires, 
scents and the fragrance of putrefaction into a symphony. War is beautiful because it creates new architectures like those of armored tanks, geometric squadrons of aircraft, spirals of smoke from burning villages, and much more. Poets and artists of futurism, remember these principles of an aesthetic of war that they may illuminate your struggles for a new poetry and a new sculpture. Um, so I mean, it's, I mean, it's just, it's utterly incredible. But uh, Benjamin actually, just quickly, he follows it up. He says, "This manifesto has the merit of clarity. The question it poses deserves to be taken up by the dialectician. To him, the aesthetic of modern warfare appears as follows: If the natural use of productive forces is impeded by the property system, then the increase in technological means, in speed, in sources of energy, will press toward an unnatural use. Uh, this is found in war and destruction, etc., etc." So I mean, what's just so striking about this to me is that it it's so self-conscious it's part of a, a self-consciously authoritarian ideology and i think that one of the themes that we'll inevitably end up exploring on this podcast and, and later to close out i have another uh, another quote on this is the idea that earlier propaganda earlier in the 20th century the the early days of kind of mass politics was much more self-consciously ideological it was much less arbitrary than even the really gaudy conservative cinema that we've talked about on Michael and us before, mm-hmm. or the kind of facile liberal stuff that we uh, were constantly knocking down like whack-a-mole. And, and this is true, not just of the fascists, but of, you know, communists and, and, uh, you know, and others. So I just think that quote, like no one would ever write that today. Mm. You could never have, I don't know if we have any kind of movements in art or, or anything that, that are so kind of, uh, I don't know, self-consciously ideolo- ideological and, like, utopian in their yeah. sheer, like, sinisterness and darkness. <laughs> uh, well, one of the things I remember about the Eternal Jew was there's a passage talking about the Jewish influence on art, mm-hmm. saying that, uh, you know, with, with forms like uh, Dada or Falvism or Cubism, it, it had brought this kind of corrupting influence, kind of an African influence that was very evil. Mm-hmm. It needs to get back to this, like, Kind of like classical Greek architecture, or right. you know, like you know, the music of Wagner, or that right. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what a kill for some Wagner in this movie, by the way. The music oh, was so boring. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm not quite sure if there's kind of a similar vision of that uh, of art like that in Trump's America. Mm-hmm. Well, it just strikes me because it seems like the Trump phenomenon. I mean, we could talk about it's obviously driven by things which are don't have to do with media that are social forces like racism and others but it's clear that one of the things that's driven trump himself is just this ongoing spectacle of his campaign Mm -hmm. which was really propelled by these mass media networks and that is so much less that's just like almost a a mechanical process playing out as opposed to you know something like what i just read but you know like trump and hitler in terms of you know their perception of of art Mm -hmm. they're both Mm anti-intellectuals hitler seemed to be like striving for some sort of art and you know by extension some sort of humanity that was kind of like back to this basic purity mm-hmm. back to this basic beauty mm-hmm. um and, and ergo like hitler's trying to go into this bold new world mm-hmm. of like purity and beauty it's nostalgic but it's like utopian and it's nostalgia whereas trump's seems to be more about well why don't we just like it's okay if we stay here in our pig pen mm-hmm. and we're and you know we're ugly and loathsome and deplorable mm-hmm. because 
because nobody can tell us that we should be any better. Well, and yeah, and look at, I mean, compare... Not to romanticize Hitler in no, any way. No, Jesus Christ. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, c- compare Trump to a figure like Mitt Romney or to any of the innumerable project for a new American century, <laughs> like suit wearing hack assholes that trump beat into the ground marco rubio jeb bush whatever you know with those people you would have seen images of fields of wheat and kind of you know the uh i that mitt romney's stupid election season book i don't remember the title you know i think it was called i mean god he can i'll never get them it was was like or no apology of course the the case for american greatness or something yeah and, um, you know, Trump is, is more of, he represents the slobbish wing of the Republican Party. I mean, it's it's grandiose, but it's it's not like patrician in the same way mm-hmm. as, as, you know, figures like Romney or Paul Ryan or John McCain, or, you know, I feel like the Republicans that we grew up with were kind of like. Yeah. So I guess, do we want to, do you want to wrap it up now? Yeah, I think so. You have a final quote? Yeah. So I think, you know, this is partly related to what we've been talking about today, but I think it's also just related to, you know, some themes that I hope we'll explore in this podcast. And I should say, you know, we don't think we're going to, unlike Michael and us, I don't think we're going to, you know, we're not going to do these films in kind of chronological order. It's going to be more free flowing. Mm -hmm. We may do them, uh, once every two weeks instead of every week we'll see but will and i really need to find time to watch uh really good films that we like again yeah um so that's something we're gonna have to do so i'm just gonna read uh from this is from an episode of um an 80s television program about modern art called shock of the new and the episode's called the faces of power and it's about political art and uh i think there's a lot of themes here that we'll be exploring throughout the podcast Uh, And so I'm just going to read this quote, and uh, then we'll leave you with uh, a tune to send you on your way. When Picasso painted Guernica, regular TV broadcasting had been in existence for only a year in England, and nobody in France except a few electronic experts had seen a television set. There were perhaps 15,000 such sets in New York City. Television was too crude, too novel, to be altogether credible. The day when most people in the capitalist world would base their understanding of politics on what the TV screen gave them was still almost a generation away. But by the end of World War II, the role of the war artist had been rendered negligible by war photography. What did you believe? A drawing of an emaciated corpse in a pit that looked like bad late German expressionism? or the incontrovertible photographs from Belsen, Meidenich, and Auschwitz. It seems obvious, looking back, that the artists of Weimar Germany and Leninist Russia lived in a much more attenuated landscape of media than ours, and the reward was that they could still believe, in good faith and without bombast, that art must mor- morally influence the world. Today, the idea has largely been dismissed, as it must be in a mass media society where art's principal social role is to be investment capital, or in the simplest yeah. way, bullion. We still, I think that's important to think of in relation to Trump. We still have political art, but we have no effective political art. An art 
An artist must be famous to be heard, but if he or she acquires fame, so their work accumulates value and becomes ipso facto harmless. As far as today's politics is concerned, most art aspires to the condition of Muzak. It provides the background hum for power. If the Third Reich had lasted until now, the young bloods of the inner party would not be interested in the old fo- in old fogies like Albert Speer or Arno Brecker, Hitler's monumental sculptor. They'd be queuing up to have their portraits silkscreened by Andy Warhol. It is difficult to think of any work of art of which one can say, this saved the life of one Jew, one Vietnamese, one Cambodian. Specific books, perhaps, but as far as one can tell, no painting or sculptures. The difference between us and the artists of the 1920s is that they thought that such a work of art could be made. Perhaps it was a certain naivete that made them think so, but it is certainly our loss that we cannot. Wow. Well, signing off, my name was Will Sloan. And I was Luke Savage. See you next time. Germany was having trouble. What a sad, sad story. Needed a new leader to restore its former glory. Where, oh, where was he? Where could that man be? Dusseldorf, and that is why they call me Rolf. Don't be stupid, be a smarty. Come and join the Nazi party.